tetragrammaton. First memory of music. My dad's Burl Ives records, Froggy Winter Courtin. Froggy Winter Courtin and he did riding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Froggy Winter Courtin and he did right. Now I understand this is Burl Ives songs. I'm going to say three or four years old. My dad was not a big music listener, but the folk songs that came along. There's a hole in my bucket. This is on the same record. There's a hole in my bucket. There lies a, there lies a, there's a hole in my bucket. There lies a, a hole. It's a long story song. It was a long set. You fill it with water. You get yourself a knife and then you cut a piece of straw and then you put the straw in the hole in your bucket. And then you fill the bucket with water. And then the final, the final sentence of the song is, but there's a hole in my bucket. <laughs> and that was it. That was my first memory. You know, you're three or four years old. Your older brother or sister knows how to put something on the turntable. And uh, oh, another another great one, Streets of Laredo. That was on that record, too. And he had a very high voice. I've since found it. I found that recording on iTunes. As I walked out in the streets of Laredo. And I didn't understand it until uh, I think one of my older brother or sister said, you know, it's a ghost song. The cowboy is a ghost and <laughs> scared the living daylights out of him. That would have been, I'm going to say, 1959, 1960. And what was the first time that there was music that you felt like this is my music? Oh, I will tell you, it was probably the Dave Clark. No, no, no. Wait a minute. I'm going to go back a few years prior to that. Heard Ray Charles's. Uh, it was a hit at the time. Hit the road, Jack. My dad was in his second marriage. For, <laughs> I was maybe five. Uh, we were living in Reno, and we had just moved. We had we had moved around a lot, and we had just had a another big move uh, that had happened. And we were living in a small apartment somewhere. And I understood that a woman was saying, "Well, hit the road, Jack. You know, don't you know, woman on woman, don't treat me this way. I'll be back on my feet someday. Don't care." because you're just no good you ain't got no money i guess if you say so i have to back the bags and go that's right hit the so the idea of hitting the road and i remember sitting on the on the curb and i thought there were two definitions of hitting the road one was leaving and the other one was literally taking your fist and bonking it on the on the paper and that led into listening to the music on the radio particularly at night when we'd be, you know, on a long drive because we lived in Reno. And I think there was, we, oftentimes there were trips to Sacramento or various parts of Northern California and the radio would come through. And you could sit, particularly at nighttime, you could sit and hear the radio and it was playing songs like Leslie Gore's It's My Party. And I just thought Leslie Gore must be the most beautiful woman in the world. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. But then, oh. It's funny you should ask this. The big one for me was the tokens, the lion sleeps tonight, high falsetto voice. Because I was only five, I could sing the high parts. 
In the jungle, the mighty jungle. Still can. The lot, yeah. No cigarettes, and I, you know, don't drink too much. But I felt transported to a jungle, and there was a lion out there. So I, I, I envisioned these, these, the, the villagers, you know, around their huts and around the fire, feeling safe because the lion was sleeping tonight. You see. Very evocative stuff. And that when, when you're five, six years old and the car is quiet because it's, you know, nine o'clock, nine thirty at night and the radio is playing and someone up there in the front seat is controlling it a little bit and they'll turn it up and they'll turn it down. And you could say, turn, turn this one up. And they turn up the lion sleeps tonight that got into, uh, I was the youngest in the family, you see. So there were high school girls. Uh, my stepsisters were like in high school. And they listened to everything. They lived and died by, by what was on the radio. And in fact, the first time I heard any song by the Beatles was when they, <laughs> the marriage had, had run its route by then and they had gotten divorced, but they still came by every now and again. And once they pulled up and there were my stepsisters and my former stepmom in the back of the car, and they were covered with Beatles merchandise they had beetle pins you know i love paul things like that you know other beetle stuff and i remember hearing please please me and i had heard about the beetles i would have been this would have been i was in first second grade by then just might have been as early as 63 no no it would have been after there would have been early 1964 the beetles had not been on the ed sullivan show yet so i'm going to say this was probably january of 1964 early yet beetles appeared on Ed Sullivan on the 13th of February. John F. Kennedy had been killed. The entire nation was in mourning, made it through Christmas, New Year's, heading back to school. One, one Friday night sometime in January, the step family shows up again to talk to my dad or work out something. The girls were always friendly and they were lovely. And out of it came this, this song. I mean, I, I remember being confused. I didn't know which one was Paul and which one was John, but I could read it on their buttons. I'm literally leaning in the, the window of the car as they're stopping, sitting around, they're just stopping out. And here was this thing, please, please me. Was, and they, they said, this is them. Oh, turn it up, turn it up. Please, please me. So my brother and sister were both older than I. My sister was five years older than me. So then the radio became as important as the TV out of San Francisco, listening to KYA radio, KFWB radio, the radio stations. And there it just all spun out. Chubby Checker, the Beatles, the Dave Clark Five, later on Tommy Rowe. You heard everything on Top 40 radio back then because you'd hear Johnny Cash and you'd hear Vince Guaraldi, you know, playing music. You heard jazz. You heard Louis Armstrong singing Hello, Dolly. At the same time, you were hearing the Rolling Stones and Jan and Dean, you know, more Leslie Gore, uh, the, the, the Motown stuff started coming out. And I remember there was this TV show called the Lloyd Thaxton show. He was a big presence in Los Angeles. He had a, essentially a record hop show, you know, it was a daily half hour version of American Bandstand that was syndicated. We saw it up in San Francisco. And they would have the acts that would come by and lip sync to their songs. And I did not know the Supremes were black until they sang on the Lloyd Thaxton show. 
And I thought they were three of the most beautiful women I had ever seen. And they were, um, they were black. Didn't see a lot of black people on TV, you know, outside of like maybe, you know, Paul Robeson on the uh, Ed Sullivan show. So I, I got lucky because I came about of being cognizant of music when it was specifically aimed at young people. And it began just before the big British invasion and the Beatles came along. I remember thinking even as early as 1961, 62, that Elvis was this old guy who was just a movie star in really cheesy movies. So it was only what? It was only like eight years after, after Elvis was Elvis. But by the time the Beatles came along, he was already as old as you know, Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra. Or, wow. Yeah. 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 He was already, he was, was already done. When Kennedy was shot, was that a big deal in your household? It was huge in that I was alone when I got the, I was in school and the, uh, the first thing, the principal never walked into our class. We were drawing pictures. I was drawing pictures of ships and whatnot. And the uh, principal showed up in the class. And he walked over and uh, he said something to the teacher and then he walked back out. And then just a few minutes later, the teacher was crying. She was in tears. And she said something like, the, the president's been killed. The president's been killed. And okay, I'm in second grade. And then literally like timing from a movie, you couldn't have asked for a better editorial choice. This voice came over the loudspeaker. Your attention, please. This is the principal. The president of the United States has been shot. We are now going to be releasing you from school and you are to go home as quickly as possible. And I don't know where my brother and sister were, but uh, maybe because our class got out a little bit early or something, but I ended up walking home by myself from Lakeside Elementary School to my aunt's house where we were living. And there were no cars on the street. It would have happened about uh, what, what time was Kennedy shot in Dallas? I think it was maybe one in the afternoon. So it was early in the day. And some I'm walking home and there's nobody out on the street. There's no school buses. There's nobody. Uh, no, no, no parents were coming by to pick up their kids. I guess some of them did later on. But I had walked to school by myself anyway. And so I just walked home in this kind of like odd kind of haze. And I'm sure it's because I'm remembering it now. 50 some odd years after the fact, but I remember the sunlight seemed different. And of course the sun was at a different angle because I was out of school early. You were normally in school at that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was completely quiet and the house was quiet. I think my uncle was sleeping because he worked nights. And then began, you know, a heaviness that I don't know that a, I don't know that a se seven-year-old kid can figure out what has happened to all these grownups. They all, they've all gone silent. They all have looks on their faces of something. I remember there might've even been talk about phrases like not since Pearl Harbor, you know? And uh, I didn't know what Pearl Harbor was. Then there was probably three. Okay, so because that was on a Friday and I believe the funeral was not till Sunday. And... I'm going to say, Rick, that I might not be accurate on this. Maybe it's just because we've replayed it so much. But I swear, perhaps inaccurately, that we were watching television when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald in the basement. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to say we were there because that was all that was on TV.
And one of the stations didn't have it, but for some reason. And of course, all of our parents were, were sitting around walking around. And there was no, we didn't have big TVs back then. It was just a small, you know, console, small screen TV. It was on a stand that we wheeled around with rabbit ears. And all of a sudden, all we were doing, the TV was on all day long. Black and white TV, all these, all these news reports. So you're seven years old and you realize that something has shifted here in a big, big way. And musically, that wake or that funeral service went on for a month. It went on for a really super long time, which meant that the joy that the Beatles brought. Now, okay, the Beatles song, I mean, they were called the Beatles because of the percussive rhythm, right? Everything was a jangly, hi-hat you know, very specific beat that came out of it, along with these harmonies that you never heard before. But this energy is done, and it just sounded brand new, you know? It sounded brand new, because we'd been listening to Chubby Checker up to that point, you know? You know, uh, uh, Limbo Rock, and, you know, Let's Do the Twist, (laughs) and, uh, you know, that's that's the stuff that we're listening to. And it said out, this came, and then we saw them, you know, we saw them uh, on on TV, and they were just so gorgeous, and they had these black suits on, and they looked nothing like the generation of performers that had come quite before. It must be because, no doubt about it, because I was young and we had gone through so much upheaval to that point. But that oppressive, it was like getting out of the most smoky, dense, incomprehensible, sad, sad, serious church service. Yeah. For for weeks, and then coming out instead, there's a carnival right there, and the carnival was was. So it's almost like the Beatles were like the birth of the '60s, essentially. I believe they were. I'll take that point. And you know, uh, later on, you know, marijuana and stuff like that, pot came in later on, like that. It was literally just the sound and the cut and the joy. I will say joy. Later on, that same year, when we finally went to the auto movies, the drive-in theater. And convinced our dad, you know, he was a single parent and he worked crazy hours in the restaurant. He would take us on occasion to the drive-in and he would fall asleep while we're watching movies like Zulu or Rhino or, you know, some, you know, some bad Elvis Presley movie. But he took us to see A Hard Day's Night. And, wow. and my brother and my sister and I still comment on sitting in the car and seeing that. And we can remember all sorts of individual bits. That not only were joyful, but they also slayed us. It was just so funny, you know. What? Oh, I'd be excited by that eventuality, you know, things like that. So it was, it was all-encompassing birth of a brand new era. So we had crossed the nation, and I think we had crossed a Rubicon. That was the difference between then and now, and it was because of the Beatles. And you know, I, I've since done a lot of research on it for movies and stuff like that. And a week after there was the Beatles were on three weeks in a row. All right. Then there was two weeks off. And Ed Sullivan had said, Yeah, I want you to go to England and you find me in the next Beatles, because they were they were ratings gold. And they came back with the Dave Clark Five. The Dave Clark Five appeared two weeks in a row. That would in I'm gonna say March or April. And you could not have convinced me that the Dave Clark Five were not the absolute complete equal to the Beatles. I thought they were still gorgeous and they sang glad all over and bits and pieces and stuff like that. And it was the same sort of joyful sound. 
but I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it would, birth of the 60s. At that point in time in the UK, I think the Dave Clark Five and the Beatles were considered equals at that point. There was the Tottenham sound versus, you know, the Mersey beat versus versus the Tottenham sound. I've since got to know Dave Clark and a couple of times, a couple of things. And uh, he was the one man everything. He told me that he was a bit of a stunt man. He was a very good looking guy. I mean, incredible. I, if you put them all together, you say, who's the best looking? If you put the Stones and the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five together, you would have picked out Mike Smith and Dave Clark as being the most gorgeous guy. And Paul McCartney would have been, you know, a bronze medalist there. So he had done he had done some movies. He had done a stunt. He drove like some car in some cheap little movie. He got paid six hundred dollars for the gig, and he took that six hundred dollars, went into his studio because he was a he was a bit of a drummer himself. Put together a band of his pals, and who had, who had been doing one night stands, and they recorded uh, Glad All Over, and that was their uh, that was their first number. That was the number one hit, and the, yeah, they were compared with. I remember issues of like Tiger Beat magazine, you know, in which the cover would literally be who's better, the Dave Clark Five or the Beatles. You had to vote just like they would put up who's better, the Beach Boys or the Four Seasons, who has the better stuff. And everybody had an opinion. And I was I was of the opinion that Dave Clark Five were, were a little bit better than the Beatles. When did that change or did it ever change? <laughs> You know, I think it, I think what happened was everybody got surly times changed in the household because my dad moved on and, uh, we had, he got married again. We had a whole other kind of like family. And by that time we were getting into 10 years old, 11 years old, and you start living a life that is outside your house. Cause being at home is not all that much fun. And when my brother brought home Frank Zappa and the mothers of invention, and started listening to Cream, that was the great divide because I just wanted to go back to, by that time, it was all Beatles all the time because the White Album had come out, Revolver had come out, Rubber Soul had come out. And I think I probably listened to only, only to the, you know, by choice, listening to the Beatles until the very first record I bought on my own when I had some money was, was John Denver. John Denver's Airy, A-E-R-I-E. It had covers of uh, The City of New Orleans. I'm riding on a city of New Orleans. What a great song. Oh, that was beautiful. And John Denver did a very beautiful melodic version of it that was loaded with, you know, songs about social justice. So I I felt as though my brother had, you know, disappeared into this other kind of, uh, I think he probably started smoking pot around then. And his friends, you know, were always lingering around waking me up because we shared a bedroom at three o'clock in the morning where their laughter. And they started listening like to traffic and loading zone and all that other stuff that came out of San Francisco. Hendrix was, I didn't understand Hendrix for the life of me because I looked at it and said, how can there only be three guys in a band? you know, the Jimi Hendrix experience. <laughs> and yet there was something amazing about the, just the lyrics of Purple yeah. Haze. And my brother actually went and saw the Jimi Hendrix experience at the Oakland Coliseum. And he didn't tell me about it until afterwards. He came home and said, oh, where were you last night? Oh, I, I went and saw Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> I didn't think it was possible. I thought people go to rock and roll shows have to be like, you know, in the army or something like that. I didn't realize a guy in junior high could just saunter down and go see it. I didn't listen to music really by choice until 1972. I got into when in high school, 
And it ended up harkening back because American Graffiti was released in 1972 and its soundtrack was a monster of, believe it or not, nostalgia radio. It asked the question, where were you in 62? And suddenly we're listening to Danny and the Juniors and Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly, which isn't necessarily 1962, but they were celebrating music that was all of 10 years old that had disappeared, that had disappeared from the radio waves because there was no such thing as nostalgia radio. And that brought back nothing but oldie stations. There were two huge oldie stations. And going back and and hearing, you know, Van Morrison, Brown Eyed Girl for the first time, going back and hearing like Chuck Berry. I had never really ever heard Chuck Berry before until uh, nostalgia radio came back, oldies radio came back, you know, and even Bill Haley rock around the clock, all that kind of stuff. And so that by that time, I was just in the maw of the, you know, commercialism. Do you think if that movie never came out today in culture, those artists would be less remembered than they are now? I think there's a good chance of it because it turned it into huge business. I mean, there's, it's no small thing to release a soundtrack for a movie and have it be the number one record for a very, very long time. I remember Paula Mapp. In the, he says, turn off that Beach Boy shit, he says, because they've turned on I Get Around when he's driving around, round, round, get around, I drive. Turn off that Beach Boy shit, man. Rock and roll hasn't been the same since Buddy Holly died. Wow. I, I said, Buddy Holly died? You know, it, was, it ended up being this huge thing. But I think you make, that's a real good question. It became huge business. All these became huge business. There were concert films that came out afterwards. Uh, Little Richard better, uh, he probably had some big ass paydays because his music came roaring back because of the nostalgia craze that really held for about, I'm guessing, you know, five or six years from 72 to by the time I was in junior college, it had sort of like spun itself out. And then disco came along and, and, Good FM radio stations came up. Up in San Francisco, we had KSAN. That was the first time I ever heard uh, Tumbleweed Connection by Elton John. And who's this guy? You know, Blue Canoe, you know, stuff like that. Take Me to the Pilot and um, Honky Chateau. When that stuff started coming out. Um, And, well, I still uh, had a tendency to listen to old Jan and Dean records just, but I was just trying to be funny. I didn't really have a musical taste per se. At any point in time, did you consider doing music? No. Did you ever play an instrument? No, no. My brother played a little bit of guitar, but no, uh, I didn't. I I was, uh, I would do that thing where with a pair of chopsticks, I would sit in my room and pretend to play the drums, but no, I had no musical inclination. And tell me about watching television growing up. I knew what time it was by what was on TV. What were your favorite shows? Well, we got UHF television in, I'm going to say, when I was in eighth grade. And suddenly we had two more TV channels than we had had. And UHF television was independently owned. And suddenly, I would say the biggest thing that entered into my life TV-wise was reruns of Star Trek every day at 6 p.m., five days a week, Star Trek. I had, I'd seen so many of them that I had, a, I had a competition with a buddy of mine. We'd both be watching in our individual houses and we'd be on the phone and we'd try to scream the title of the show out 
as soon as we can figure out. Trouble with tribbles, you know, balance <laughs> of terror. <laughs> Something like that. I mud. We were yelling out the titles of the of the thing. But that got me into absolute fluky discovery when I was in eighth grade. I read, there used to be good television coverage in the Oakland Tribune. There was a columnist every day who would talk about television and what was coming on. And I, I read uh, in the morning or in the afternoon, I had read about this a program called Film Odyssey that was on PBS. Now, PBS was a public radio station, so there were no commercials. And it was hosted by Charles Champlin, who I did not know at the time, but he was the film critic for the Los Angeles Times. It was called Film Odyssey. And what it did, it took films from around the world, uh, old films that were classic, and they showed them uninterrupted. And I would, I just wanted to see a movie without commercials. I thought that was unique. And, yeah. and I didn't quite understand Jewels and Gem, you know, that was on. I didn't under, quite understand Beauty and the Beast in, in French. But one night there was going to be this thing with samurais on it, sword fights, and they look really cool. And I, the, the photograph was of two guys going at it with samurai swords. One of them, I guess, was Toshiro Mifune. And I just said, oh, hey, tonight I'm going to watch this thing. It's going to have really cool sword fights. And it was The Seven Samurai by Kurosawa. And this weird thing happened. I never stayed involved in a movie with subtitles on it because within Japan, Japanese with subtitles. And in a nanosecond, I forgot that I was reading subtitles. In my mind, I was actually understanding the Japanese. You know, that kind of stuff. That's what it sounded like. And I went to school the next day, and I was mesmerized by this thing because it had some of the coolest stuff. In the world. And, you know, it's a classic story that has been redone many times by, you know, the Magnificent Seven, what happened, Seven Samurai. And I understood it. Even though it was about Japan, feudal Japan, I understood the story. I understood what was going on. I understood the peasants and the brigands and, the, and this ragtag collection of ronin samurai. And when I went to school the next day, I just assumed every guy in class had seen it. I said, God, did you guys see samurai, Seven Samurai last night? No one knew what I was talking about. So that tuned me into this idea that there was something much farther beyond Star Trek at six o'clock at night. If you were a judicious chooser, if you like perused what was on TV around it, you could find some really, really cool stuff. And not long after that, I started watching, seeking out old Humphrey Bogart movies. Like the first time I saw, it was cut to ribbons, but the first time I saw the Maltese Falcon or Casablanca. When you see them for the first time, it doesn't matter that they're on a black and white television. They're just the most imaginative. I remember watching A Bridge Over the River Kwai on the ABC Sunday Night Movie. And I'm thinking, this might be the greatest motion picture I've ever seen. It was in pan and scan technology, you know, and I'm watching it in black and white. Then later on, able to search out series like Theater in America, which was doing, um, they did things like uh, the Andersonville Trial. That was essentially live videotaped theater of great plays. I ended up seeing a, a fabulous production of Cyrano de Bergerac that came out of San Francisco's own American Conservatory Theater. And to be, you know, late junior high, high school, and realize that I get this stuff, and yet it's still all a friggin' mystery to me. I'm not sure why these things that look nothing like the movies I see regularly or that I pay to go see in the movie theater or that are delivered to me, you know, every night during the week. I, I'll go back again and again to like Elvis Presley movies or James Bond movies or Charlton Heston historical dramas. None of these things were like those at all. 
but they they landed in my head in a way that is instinctively involved in it. But at the same time, I said, man, there's so much stuff that I don't quite get from this. I'm not quite smart enough to understand the verbiage or the techniques, but it opens yourself up to open me up to a, a, a brand of curiosity that says, hey, man, I want to see more of this kind of stuff. And then getting into college, there was a theater uh, in Berkeley on University Avenue called the UC. It was an ancient movie palace. And it probably had like 1,500 seats. And they were trying to make a living showing, swear to God, a double bill of Tommy and Listomania. Tommy by the Who, you know, a horrible movie. Uh -huh. And Listomania, which I don't know, might have been a good movie. I have no idea. But the guy who owned it said, I'm losing my shirt doing this. I'm going to put forward the idea of a repertory cinema. And what he did was seven days a week, he had a different bill. He would program it himself. And he would do things like show all three James Dean movies in one night. Nothing but uh, Nicholas Ray movies for one night. Nothing, you know, nothing but Truffaut movies for one night. And everybody started getting the three-month-long calendars and putting them up on their refrigerators or their bulletin board to just say, I'm going to see that one. I'm going to see that one. I'm going to see that one. And I ended up going to those things by myself because I couldn't get anybody else interested in going to see, you know, East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause and, and Giant all in the same night. But shit, I did because this was all brand new, brand new stuff to me. Uh, the biggest thing that happened when I was 13, though, was seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey. But I saw it uh, one weekend with some friends of mine, and I immediately went back the next Saturday to see it by myself because. That was a blend of nothing but shots, color, sound, not even a lot of dialogue. And I had to see it probably 15 times, but I could understand what was really going on with it. But from the get-go, from the very first moment, I, without knowing that I was watching cinematic art, without calling it cinematic art, bang, hit me on the head just like that. I said, oh, something else is being communicated here in a completely different way. And I think I get it. Yeah, the idea that something that abstract could speak to you when you were that young says a lot. At the age of 13, yeah. Uh, I had a tendency to isolate a lot uh, because I was the youngest in the family. A lot of times I just got lost in the shuffle, and a lot of times I was the only one home alone. And I was never bored when I was there. And uh, you know, I think some degrees of loneliness or something like that might have crept in. But I filled up that loneliness with some other degree of, let's just call it a, a type of curiosity that was different from going to school. I loved going to school. School was action, man. School was fun. And you know, I, I, you know, if you had a couple of classes you liked, that's all you needed to get out of it. But it was where things were popping. And I was always able to kind of like get up in front of people like it was nothing at all. But that was counterbalanced by long, long hours of being alone and creating stories, sometimes with toys, but sometimes just with the TV on, not really paying attention to what was going on on it, but periodically looking at it and taking in this kind of like a, a subjective concept of image and sound and why something seemed really accurate and authentic and why other times it just seemed as fake as fake could be. And both of them would hold my attention for a while. Were you a big reader as well? I became a big reader when I was in high school. And I started reading what I like to say nonfiction novels by the likes of Leon Uris, who mm -hmm. wrote historical things like Exodus 
uh, Mila 18, which was about the uh, Warsaw Ghetto in World War II, Armageddon, which was about the divided city that Berlin was. Exodus was about the form formation of uh, Israel. Then I would read um, Alex Haley books, you know, airport, hotel, wheels about, you know, certain types of industry. And they were all sort of like turbulent, uh, turgid uh, soap operas. But along with it, too, would come some sense of news reporting, some sense of fact, some sense of history that really got super shifted when I read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. I just it was one of those things. I knew it was a movie. I knew adults watched it. There was a book in the Skyline High School library that I said, I'm going to give this a shot. And it scared the living daylights out of me. And I read it in record time. It was one of those things that see kids reading on the bus on the way home from school instead of goofing off. That's what I that's what I was when I was reading in cold blood. And it was it just terrified me. The randomness of it, what had happened to that family, the two guys that did it. And, uh, you know, no small amount of what the pros of Truman Capote and the uh, what he made up and what he kept, you know, what he fancied and and what he imagined was all in there. And uh, man, oh, man, after, after that, I, I would say my my reading taste really shifted because I started I never read fantasy. I never read the, the Lord of the Rings. I didn't read that kind of stuff. If it didn't happen or if it wasn't based on some sort of real thing, it, it wouldn't hold my interest. Would you read nonfiction as well or no? I'm going to say no, because I don't think I read really serious nonfiction books until I was probably in my early 20s and read William Manchester's biographies on Winston Churchill. William Manchester is a great storyteller. Uh, scholarly in ways that you need to be scholarly, but more than anything else, it's like, oh, this guy told a story about Winston Churchill at dinner last night that I didn't want to end. And what are the the op it opens up? I remember distinctly remember it opens up with like almost a time machine trip back to Victorian England that was describing the daily life of your average Londoner at a time when Victoria was still on the throne. And this was this was the era in which Winston Churchill was born. And it talked about, among other things, how filthy the gin ghettos in London were. You know, you know what a gin ghetto is? A gin ghetto is where all the poor people live who can't afford beer because it's expensive, but can afford gin because it's made so cheaply. So they were all drunk on gin all the time. It was their version of pot or their version of something. And I just thought huge swaths of poor, uneducated, illiterate people who are toiling around in sweatshops and stuff like that, or working as butlers or, you know, in that, in that class service economy that uh, the Britain was. And I just remember thinking, gin ghettos. Man, oh man, that's 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 a different sort of way of looking at sociology. So that I would say that's the that's the the bona fide nonfiction history. And after that, man, I just I throw I, I can only get through so, certain nonfiction books because they're not written. You know, I've mm-hmm. tried to read Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror and uh, The Guns of August so many times, and I just can't crack it after about 120 pages. The story is what drives your interest. Yeah. And also, I think what the what the author finds fascinating, uh, for example, Stephen Ambrose, I started reading Stephen Ambrose, you know, back when we started doing uh, Saving Private Ryan. And I met him 
I think it's the desire to see history as a story that reflects who we are even now. Stephen Ambrose told this great story. He went to, he went to the university at New Orleans or something in order to go to be pre-med, right? He was going to go pre-med, be a doctor. And you had to take this one history class, the first class. And it's probably like 200, 200 people in the, in the class. And the professor came out and gave his first lesson for an hour. And it was so mesmerizing talking about history and the importance of history and moments from history that Stephen Ambrose said he went down at the end of the class to the teacher's uh, desk and said, how do I get your job? <laughs> That's what he said. He understood history is this great story that is about who we are right now. It's not locked away in some ongoing nostalgia. It's not about the mythic formation that never would have happened any other way. It's about people trying to get by doing one damn thing after the other in the face of, you know, terror or accident or trying to get out of a gin ghetto so you can improve your life somehow. Yeah, it's also interesting when you read history from different periods of time about the same period of time, the history changes based on the culture of the time it's being written in. The perspective on what is important and what the connections were at the time. I just had this experience because I've read this book by William Manchester many times called A World Lit Only by Fire. I talk about it. The first time I read it, 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 which is essentially about what life was like back at the end of the 1400s, right? It's about the 15th century that coincides beautifully with the start of the Renaissance and how people lived. And how if you, were, you were, if you were an average Joe, meaning if you weren't landed gentry, if you weren't the clergy, and if you weren't a soldier, essentially you work yourself to death and were hungry all the time. That's it. And you never traveled more than a few miles from the place you were born. So you always died pretty much right there. And yet at the same time, Gutenberg has invented the printing press. Martin Luther has come through uh, with breaking with the papacy. Magellan has sailed around the world. And essentially, the Renaissance has begun. And chances are, if there's a cathedral being built in your town, either in Germany or Italy or France or Spain, your grandparents worked on that cathedral and your grandkids will work on that cathedral because that's how long it takes to build them, right? Well, I, I read that and I've gone back over and over and over again because I ended up spending some time in places where it takes place. You know, I made a movie in Rome. I made a movie in, uh, in Florence. I lived in London. I did all these kind of things. So I was always reading it for this ongoing sort of like background to get an understanding of the difference between now and then. And I just now finished reading a book called The Swerve by a historian by the name of Stephen uh, uh, Greenblatt, uh, who I met not too long ago when I was in Boston. And I said, well, I've heard of you. And he said, oh, I wrote this book called The Swerve. I said, I have a copy of The Swerve that I haven't cracked. So I opened it, and it is, it is another window onto that same period of time. And it's not so much thematically different, but it ends up getting into a very different sort of the division between the haves and the have-nots. I mean, it's about the ongoing aspect of what, how crooked the papacy was how insane everything, how often you did not want to be called a heretic 
You didn't want to be accused of being a heretic as if you question anything about the church. You died a horrible death and everybody showed up to watch and be entertained by how you were flayed alive or burned alive or drawn from quarter. And it ends up, it, I think all these kind of historical things, they pile up on each other. And when, even when they do disagree, like if you, if you can read your average history of like, say, the Apollo space program, there's a lot of stuff in there that, that people disagree with each other, you know, historical data and also thematically. But you put it all together, and what it is is just more of a complete picture that, you know, there's no definitive definition of what it is. With the same one damn thing after another that people went through back then, it's everybody's arguing still about the one damn thing after another that mattered the most. And it's all part of this big, massive card game that sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And I can't get enough of that. I mean, I got to say, my wife, Rita, says, what historical book are you reading now? And I said, you don't want to ask that question because I'm going to start talking and I won't stop for the next hour and 45 minutes because I'm finding out nothing but fascinating stuff. In this stuff. And it, but it's all about, I always think about this. What would I do if I was in that same circumstance? You know, what would I do for a living if I were back there? What would I be interested in? What, what courage would I have and what stands would I be willing to take? And uh, it, ain't that kind of like uh, the best version of any kind of, when you hear a story, well told. Isn't that sort of like part of the contract between the storyteller and the person who is hearing the story is what would you do in these same circumstances? I don't know about that. I, I think that's fascinating. That says a lot about you. Cause when I read, when I read a historical story, I never imagined myself in that story ever. <laughs> Seriously. Maybe you would, if you read the next one, you know, if you read another interpretation of what the, what those same, that those same times are, because some of them, of course, they, they do concentrate on the turgid. They do want to be involved in, you know, the specific, like, okay, say, for example, I've read plenty of stuff about D-Day. All right. Part of it was for research, part of it because I'm fascinating, but there's other things I need to hear a little bit more about this stuff. And even there, there's some moments I never think for a moment, you know, what would that mean? If I, but there's other times I read it. So if I'm 20 years old and this is the first time I've seen combat, which is on D-Day, what do I do? You know, what do I trust? How afraid am I? What dumb thing would I do? And, you know, you also have to consider the fact, what if I just crawled up in a hole and stayed there for as long as possible and never put myself? All of these things are possible because we don't know. And uh, even when I see, like, go to go into the movies, and look, there's plenty of movies that are just sheer action adventure, and you want to be cool, and you want you want to you want to kiss the girl and shoot the guy, and you know, ride the motorcycle and pet the dog. You want to do all those. But then there's other aspects of it where you just think, who would I be in this story? Would I be the hero? Would I be the villain? Would I be the goat? Would I be the coward? What would I do if I was in these same kind of like circumstances? And isn't that when I see those type of movies and I come out, that's the stuff that you end up talking with your friends heatedly about, you know, over coffee afterwards or the next time you all get together. When you read a script, are you focusing on the story of the script or are you paying attention to what your character would do and is it right for you? It's the theme is the first thing that has to be evident. And that theme then, if, you, if it's definable, has to then be worthy of doing all the work of a movie in order to examine it. What are we talking about? What's the option here? I, I will tell you, I made a movie called Charlie Wilson's War. 
It was written by uh, Aaron Sorkin. It was directed by Mike Nichols. We talked theme constantly about, and I don't, I don't know that we agreed. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. I don't know, don't know what we agreed, about, agreed upon. And, I, and actually, Charlie Wilson was alive. I mean, he was around. He, I talked to him all the time about, Charlie, what were you doing here? What was the point of all of this kind of stuff? After you understand what you, everybody sort of has to agree that this is the movie that we're making, you know, you have to come to a collective thing. Once you agree what the movie is making, then anything you bring to what that question is going to be is valid because there's no right way. Because it's, it's literally, how do we solve this problem? You know, it's like a scientific thing. How many different ways can we come at examining this theme? After that, then most, most screenplays are very malleable, you know, because you get together with them. They're written by, usually written by somebody and directed by somebody else. And uh, uh, if you're doing it right, you're always, always, always testing the material. The work that I feel like I have to do as the actor is, uh, number one, show up on time. This is very important because time is money. You have to know the text. And by text, I mean certainly your own dialogue. But also that of the, everything else that is going on within the scene, what other people are doing and what they mean by what they say, you have to know that. But you, you also have to have an idea in your head that you haven't told anybody about, that you haven't shared with anyone. You have to come in with an understanding of who, what your character is, what he was doing right up to that point what he's experiencing in the course of what the scene and then what he does with that information. And it constantly varies. It always goes on. You can, only, you can prepare to, for it for up to a certain time, but it's not unlike writing, uh, except you don't, I don't, you don't have to sit down at the laptop. You don't have to come up with 1,500 words every morning, but you do have to come up with the superstructure. I like to use those kind of words. Those, the, you, the superstructure for what happens in that scene and there's very actually very little that you can bring out in sort of the verbiage of it there is the interpretation of the lines there's the give and take with the other characters there's also body language there is how you stand how you sit how you i just today as a matter of fact i was just having lunch and i found myself holding a fork and a knife and i'm thinking about this possibility that we might be doing in like the next year or so and i just thought Hey, I think this is the way he eats. I think he holds his knife and fork like that. Oh, I'm going to remember this because what it it will communicate something that is so ephemeral. Now, maybe no one will get it, but as long as I present it, that means that behavior is up there on the screen. So when you get around to the story, the, the story is plot in all honesty, and that stuff is give and take. You kind of like make that stuff up on the day. Why are you coming in and why do I go to the window? And what happens when he comes in and says that stuff? That is literally the easiest stuff in order to discuss. The harder philosophical arguments that you can have with everybody on the movie, if you're smart, the director, the writer, everybody else that's in it, even the cinematographer. I mean, I've had, I've had talked about theme with the guys who are bringing the props in. You know, it's like, wait, I don't think, I think he'd smoke Chesterfields, guys. Why Chesterfields? You got to know something about Chesterfields. They were the, you know, they, they never had a filter on them. And yet they weren't the cheap version like Lucky Street. You know, you had to have all this kind of stuff with you going on. But then the unspoken part is what you're carrying around inside your head. 
And, you know, good actors, the great, I've never worked with anybody that I didn't just respect like crazy. And I don't care who they are. I know that they're coming in with unspoken story in their pocket, ideas that I'm going to have to re- react to and divine simply by how they look at me, what their timing is like, and how authentic the scene is. And when that's, man, it's just, it's just magic time, man. It's not work at all. Would you say that there's a whole unspoken story going on between the actors that the person you're acting with has no idea about? They're doing the same thing. You have no idea what they're doing other than the surface. We know what the surface is, but everything below the surface is just happening. I'll use the word ad lib, even though it's silent. You're absolutely correct. And I wish sometimes a movie could actually show all the takes that have gone on either side of somebody, right? Because they only that's use, a movie. They only use one. That's a movie. Yeah. They no, but that's an interesting movie idea. If it's yeah. a movie about making movies and showing all of that, it's really interesting. You know, I there's been a couple of movies that did that. I want to say Hail Caesar by the Cohen brothers captured it at one moment with George Clooney at the end when he's playing the centurion at the crucifixion of Christ. And I want to say in Mulholland Drive. I want to say Naomi Watts does it in a scene with Chad Everett, in which it's they're literally talking about the making of a movie. Uh, it could be you could say the same maybe for uh, Truffaut's Day for Night, but every, it's never really been captured anywhere else, which is sort of one of the reasons why I wrote the book the way I did. But what happens is you're in there connected with somebody. Sometimes it's a woman, sometimes it's a guy, sometimes it's a bunch of guys, sometimes it's a group of people and you're just going back and forth. If you could be present and see the difference between what you have just learned from the previous take and what you're going to try in this one and the ongoing back and forth of, you know, it's like a game of blackjack hit me. Oh, I'm going to stand. Oh no, I'm going to, it is fascinating. And it's one of the most exciting thing that happens in a set because sooner or later, right? You're in a close up, Okay. And the up is never the first thing shot. You've done all sorts of other. So you have a, you have a wide understanding of where you can go in the scene. But if you, if you are off camera looking at your scene partners and, and you get a sense of how far they stretch things and how, how they change it around and how they give you something else and how they've discovered it themselves. When you come back around on, on you, you remember it. And then you start throwing other stuff back the same way. And I, it's, it, it's too bad that you could make, actually, that might make a really great documentary. So if you, we could get, we, we have all 17 takes, you know, from both sides of this. Let's look at the other scene that this movie could have been. I mean, you could take the greatest motion picture scenes in the history. If you want to choose a couple of other takes that they did, it's a completely different scene. And means something totally different and doesn't have in it whatever. But you can't get to that final version. Of course, you don't get to make the decision either, because somewhere between the directors and the editors and the and certainly the film score and everything else that goes along with it alters it. But just the actors themselves, I think, have this moment where in their line, in their scene, in their moment, in the creative beat in the scene, they can change the direction of the entire movie with a nod of the head or a pause in the line, or in a new presentation of, I think, what the subtext is. Because all scenes are made up of two things. Text, that's the words, and subtext, which is what 
those words mean as you say them in a given moment. It's fascinating stuff. And when it, you know, sometimes it's intimidating as hell. I've worked, I've worked with people who just scared the living daylights out of it because they're so good at what they've done. And there's other times where I just said, I don't know where that came from, but I'm glad I stumbled upon it because I think it's actually something I didn't even see coming. Has there ever been a moment where you've tried something in one take, a throwaway moment that you didn't do in later takes, but for some reason that one thing that you didn't think much of ends up being pivotal in a movie or a memorable scene or a emotional moment? It happens all the time and it happens by accident. And sometimes it's something that you did sort of remember trying that wasn't in the screenplay. I'll give you one. And by the way, no one's seen this movie. I'm in a movie with uh, Emma Watson that was directed by James Ponsell from the Dave Eggers movie, The Circle. It's about an internet kind of thing. It was around for a while. There's a scene with me and uh, Patton Oswalt and Emma Watson. And we're internet moguls that are trying to convince this woman to do something that is not honest, right? And she has us all over the barrel. And we did the scene, and we Patton's a great actor, and, uh, and Emma's incredibly, incredibly gifted. And the three of us were having a really great time going around in this thing because it, it was a triangle. Patton wanted something. I wanted something. She wanted something. And none of them meshed, right? And at the end of it, on just out of nowhere, when before it was cut, it was the end of the scene. In character, I looked at uh, Patton and I said, we are so fucked. <laughs> and he said, yes, we are. And it ended up being the moment that the scene called for somehow. And, all, it, and it wasn't in the script. It was not in the script at all. It was, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think uh, that's one version of it. But when I worked with, uh, I've worked twice now with Paul Greengrass. You know, he directed United uh, 91. He directed uh, Captain Phillips and made a movie called News of the World with him as well. Well, he made Bloody Sunday. He's a great filmmaker. And he came out of documentaries. And when we were doing the Captain Phillips movie, we shot everything that was in the script for the end of the film. And we were on the ship and we were actually talking to the actual participants of the day when Captain Phillips was rescued from the Somali pirates and everything that went along with it. And we were talking to the captain who was actually in uh, in command of the ship that uh, rescued Richard Phillips. And Paul, Paul, who's English, he says, you know, when when exactly did you, you, did you first have a conversation? He was looking for something else to shoot, in all honesty. We had shot everything that was on paper. And we're just saying, we're here on the ship. We got a few hours. What else can we grab? Uh, which is a great way in order to make a film. And uh, the captain said, well, of course, I didn't, you know, I was busy with the Department of Defense and, uh, you know, all the Navy SEALs and whatnot. So I, I, didn't, I didn't see Phillips until he got out of the infirmary. And Paul Greencrest said, the infirmary? Yeah. And he said, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and the, the protocols is, is that all of that, anybody coming off something like that, he's, he's got to be, he's got to be looked at the medics to find out, you know, if he's injured or anything like that. And we had never heard this, didn't know it, wasn't in the book, wasn't anywhere. And so we went down to the infirmary, you know, with Barry, with Barry Aykroyd, who was our DP, me and Paul. And we walked into the folks that were on duty. And the, uh, a woman, I think her name was Cynthia, and her staff, she was in command of the infirmary. 
And we walked in and it was like, they knew we were on the boat, uh, the ship, and they wanted to maybe be in the movie. And, you know, cause we're moving in the bulkheads who were on the deck and stuff like that. And they said, Oh my God. Hi. So Paul started saying, and they said, can I ask you a question? You know, you know, the story, right? Oh yeah. 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 Well, uh, uh, Phillips would have been brought to you in order for a checkup. What would you have done? And she just snapped into, well, what we would immediately try to do is get all of his vital signs. We'd try to clean him up. We would have tried to figure out what blood was his. Was he injured? Had he been shot? Did he have any stab wounds? Was he malnourished? Was he dehydrated? We, do, we would just do the whole, whole overall thing. And he said, you, you would actually have a procedure for this? Said, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it would be standard. He said, well, if we dress Tom up in all of his kit, he said, you know, blood stains, ripped up shirt, the whole bit. Do you think you could, we could do it with you? And she said, you mean like on camera? And he said, yeah. It would be like a drill. Could you just do it as a drill? And she said, yeah, I, I suppose so. And he said, great. And by that time, Barry Aykroyd was, he had worked with Paul before. So he was sticking up lights everywhere, right? He said, oh, you know, if we come around, because it's a very small space. I mean, very tiny space. And so I went off and got all my kit put back on and came in. And by that time, we had shot so much of me beaten, slapped around and beat up by the, the, the guys who played the Somali pirates. So I'm, I was pretty much corked. I was, I was still, still carrying that all around with me. And we did it. The first, the first pass we did didn't go very far because they were nervous and they were a bit intimidated. And they said, no worries, no worries, worries. And I, I just gave a said, look, this happens all the time. I've done it. You can't do anything wrong here. If it's not good, it won't be in the movie. Just try to say it straight out of your face because that's, that's all we're trying to do. And if you think I haven't stopped the take in the middle of it because I'm not there, you're wrong. I do it all the time. So this is the way, this is the way movies are made. And we did it. We probably did three or four takes of it. And every time it was her protocol, her behavior, and it was as natural as natural could be. And we were done in about 40 minutes. And that was the epitome of understanding what the procedure is, getting somebody to do the actual physical behavior of it, but exploring another way to get deeper, deeper down into the theme of the movie, which in that scene was particularly a very gentle, pleasant human being, a woman telling Richard Phillips that you're going to be okay. You're okay. Now. Which is like, I mean, come on. That there's a lot of there's a lot of movie makers that would not have done that. There were a lot of people who had been satisfied with what they had, who would think, oh, well, we have these other scenes that are can be the end of the movie. We'll figure something out. And that's a type of thing that if I that if I had not had one absolute faith in Paul, as well as a shitload of experience of how to get there when the time comes that you have to get there, we would have missed out on that. And I also had had so many conversations with the actual Richard Phillips that uh, I, I had plenty of I had plenty of written imaginings in my head of what he had been through and what he had seen, and they all it all came out in that scene that was not in the script and was not on the shooting schedule and was only in the movie because Barry Aykroyd is fast with the lighting. Paul is fantastic with seeing what the possibilities are, and the crew that was inside there only behaved according to the protocol. And some people would say, why would we do something so realistic like that? It's a movie. We can do something else. Do you always do a lot of research before going into a role? 
There are some that you have to do, and there's others that you must not. For example, I made a movie called The Green Mile, directed by Frank Darabont, the Stephen King novel. And I, as soon as I began doing research on what the character was, I realized that the authentic truth about being a guard on death row in a Louisiana state prison would not match up with the motion picture. So I just stopped. I said, okay, we're going to make up our own logic on this. And it was a good thing I did because uh, I think that's <laughs> that's a long prison movie that is still pretty pretty damn uh, hypnotic if you if you stick with it. So you have to. That's where you come into like what I said earlier. You have to. Everybody has to agree with the movie that they're that the movie that they're making. They have to say this is what we're doing. And if I hadn't said, guys, I can't make this movie because you know Louisiana guards on death row did not wear uniforms. They didn't have guns on their on their holsters. Well, if you're going to do that, you ain't in the movie. You know, and you kind of like wonder, well, this is the better way to examine this theme than this other way. Was, you know? Yeah. And you then in you go because you can establish your own procedure and behavior. But everybody has to agree <laughs> with what that procedure and behavior. Yeah. How different are different directors stylistically? None has ever been the same as the other. Part of it is uh, all directors come to their gig from some other perspective. You know, some are writers, you know, Nora Ephron was a writer um, from books to screenplays to the movies that you read. Frank Darabont started off as uh, he was a guy in charge of uh, swing gang uh, art direction. That's how he got into the movies. He started doing, you know, making sure the, the right wallpaper was in it. Ron Howard grew up, you know, he knew he wanted to be a director when he was seven years old doing the Andy Griffith show, you know, with Barney Fife. Stephen, of course, Steven Spielberg, he started directing movies when he was 10 and still directs them the same exact way as he did then, still does it uh, with the same natural instinct. I guess the question is, is how do they approach it? And I've done movies where we had three and a half weeks of rehearsal in which the set is taped out on the floor and you have props and you run the scenes and you, you do rehearse it and you get it down word perfect so that when the day comes, you're doing it. I've done movies where all we did for three and a half weeks was to sit around and talk about what other characters mean and, and what they do. Stephen doesn't rehearse for a moment. Stephen assumes that you're going to show up. Uh, you're going to know the dialogue, and he will tell you where you are in the shot. And guess what? Turns out he's done all the work for you because the shot tells the entire story, and you are but a cog in it. I'm very lucky, I think, that because I came from repertory theater uh, when I was young, working with a lot of directors, our job was to facilitate the director's desires, not wait for the director to tell us exactly what to do. Because if you're doing that kind of thing where you're going to say, uh, hey, why don't you move to the window, right? Well, why would I move to the window? What's my motivation for moving? No, you can't, can't do it that way. It says, hey, any way, any way you can move to the window in this scene? I, I always say, watch this. And then I'll, come up, with my, <laughs> I'll come, up with, come up with my own reason to watch the movie or go out the window. If he asked me, why yeah. do you want to? I said, I'll tell you why. Because I, I real, suddenly realized I left the window down in my car and it's parked. I want to see if anybody's breaking. I can come up with any motivation. That's my job. That's my job. But the, the, the grand uh, refreshment, if I could use it that way, is that everybody does this things, does this differently. And everybody brings to it a different sort of challenge and, and, and comfort level. And uh, that's, that's part of the magic of the, of the variety that you're going to make. Sometimes movies cannot be made any other way except in this incredibly artificial atmosphere. 
uh, blue screens and hitting marks and focus places and stuff like that. I made a comedy with, oh man, I have a granule plate shift. Um, I'll, I'll scream his name out in a second. <laughs> you know, he was a cinematographer of The Godfather. Uh, Gordon Willis, for crying out loud. All right, so we're making The Money Pit, right? We're making a comedy called The Money Pit. It was about a couple that buys a house and it, it destroys them financially and almost destroys them as a marriage. Big, huge comedy directed by Richard Benjamin. And uh, he says, Gordon Willis is going to shoot it. And I thought, Gordon Willis? Gordon Willis is going to shoot the money pit with our funny gags and our repartee and stuff like that? And when I finally, when I met him, I said, Gordon, I, I'm going to ask you a question. Why did you want to shoot this movie? And he said, because there's no reason that comedies can't be well shot. So what he was saying is, I'm going to bring all of the composition and lighting and camera moves to a comedy that you'd bring to any great story. And of course, he, you know, he made the, you know, the, the greater Woody Allen movie. He said, you'd have to say those were comedies too. In a big and it was, because it was Gordon Willis, I was going to do anything that man said. And it was incredibly limiting. There was a way in order to hit a mark for Gordon Willis that didn't have just to be accurate. It had to be precise. Gordon Willis would be looking through, you know, he measured every shot from the length of the floor to what the, what the actual lens was. And he would literally move the, his finder six inches or up or down or to the left. And there was a huge difference between each one of those positions. And I would be on my mark thinking I was on my mark. And he would be looking through it and he would say, Tom, you're, you're not on your mark. And it was because my weight was on my left foot instead of my right foot. All right. You'd think, well, that's stultifying. No, it's not. It's actually liberating. Because when you get to the place where you realize it requires that amount of fidelity, that means you do a shitload of other stuff with your shoulders and your eyes and the tone of your voice and whatever you're getting from at that point. It was Shelley Long was in the movie with me. And it ended up being, and that you have to go and be remolded into the type of artist and the type of professional I have to be. Certainly by the material, it's always different. Certainly by the DP, you know, but along with the director itself. I have worked with the same director a number of times. I've worked with Penny Marshall twice. I've worked with uh, Bob Zemeckis five times. I've uh, worked with uh, Stephen five times. I've worked with uh, Nora. i worked with uh, Ron Howard many times. And I, there's plenty of other people. I say, hey, let's get back. What do you got? Let's do some more stuff. Tom Titford. I worked with him on Cloud Atlas and Hologram for the King. Because once you get past the way they work and the nomenclature and the vocabulary of working, you're that farther ahead down the process. And so you get to unleash all this other, you get to go deeper into, you know, farther. You don't have to do just A, B, and C or actually working in other, other letters of the alphabet. It's incredibly liberating. When the camera is on you for a close-up, and it's an emotional scene, and there's no dialogue, and your eyes are telling the story. And it feels like every movie I see of yours, that happens, <laughs> where there'll be a decent length shot where we're just looking at your face, you're, we're looking at your eyes, and we're going along with the whole story that you're telling. Are you telling the story that we're watching? Are you telling yourself something about your own life? Or what's going on in you when we're watching your eyes? The insanity of all of this is, is that a scene like that could have been shot three weeks prior 
and you're you're thinking about something totally different. But that size, that background is the shot that is needed for a scene that hasn't even been shot yet. And they put it together in edit. The fact is it works both ways. And I, I can I could walk you through any uh, any number of mine is say we didn't shoot that that day. <laughs> that wasn't in that. That was a completely different thing. But the other side of it, it also works when all you're doing is being in the scene, being in the story, taking it in exactly as it is playing itself out at that very, very specific moment. The thing that that you learn, or not, I don't want to say learn because it that makes it makes it seem possible that that almost anybody can do it, is the thing that you divine over time is an acceptance that it can work both ways, but that there is some difference, I think, in your own sense of authenticity when it all comes together in the scene on the day that you are shooting it. The other thing that comes along with it, you have to, that you have to understand is sometimes it don't work at all. Sometimes you think you got it and you've nailed it. And then they put it together and it just ain't there. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not. But I, you know, there's, there's any number of moments where I thought, oh, this is, this is the big close-up. This is the big banger here. I better be there for the big banger. I got to get there for this one. And there's something about the scene that doesn't land. Not, not necessarily anybody's fault. It's just something in the mix. It's like, you know, you're playing cards and you think, oh, my God. I've got a full house here. I've got three threes and two sevens. I'm going to win this. And you lose because somebody else has two queens and three tenths, you know? Yeah. Uh, that happens all the time. So there, there remains this ephemeral sense of magic and serendipity that comes into play all the time. At the same time, there are moments where you got to go there, man. And if, if you said, how do you, how'd you do that scene where blah, blah, blah happened? I said, I'll tell you how it happened. <laughs> I, I went there. That's what yeah. happened. And then you also, you also witness other people going there as well. People are in the scene that you're in. And you say, undeniably, that person right there just went to a place that was so, so profoundly deep and, and spiritual. And then you see it when the when when the you end up like coming when the when the movie comes out. You say, "Hey, I was there when they did that," and I hope, given the same circumstances, I can get there as well because I can walk you through. Look, you know, you went, if you make enough movies, you can just say, "No, no, no, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, not quite, not quite, no, yes, yes, yeah." You can you get to do that, but I wish there was some other way around it. But oftentimes, you just have to go there in terms of going there the actor you're against goes there mm -hmm. and now you're responding is there a sense of competition or is there a sense of this is really happening and i'm in it do you get carried away in the moment or is it something else I can only respond because of the way things have been as I become more and more in tune to, I think, whatever instrument I get to bring to it. And also the fact that I have, I've only said yes to things that I have immediately been fascinated by as soon as I read them. Forever or, or when did that start? 
oh, no, no, I'm going to say that, you know, it started at some point where, number one, I felt that I, I needed to go farther and I didn't have to start worrying about, you know, the financial aspects of it. And I realized that I didn't have to take every job, that the job to be a writer and I think the job to be an artist is to make a different type of judicial choice. Uh, and that honestly went to, I'm going to say somewhere around Apollo, sometime around working with Penny Marshall. I just, on big, I just realized there's a whole type of movie that I don't want to do anymore. And not that I knew what type of movie I did want to do, but there was a type of theme. There's type of movie that was going to examine a theme in a way that that's the type of, those are the type of people that I wanted to work with. And that's the type of movie that I wanted to make, even in, even in the confines of something that are just kind of like uh, rip snorting uh, scavenger hunts, like the Da Vinci Code or something like that. There's actually a logic and a theme that I got to explore even in those movies. But as time has gone by, I have been able to, I think, gravitate towards a different sort of focus so that there's a ton of stuff I just don't even notice anymore. I don't see the camera crews anymore. I don't see the carnival that a movie is. I don't see the tools. I don't see the booms. I was in a movie. I was doing a thing when I, did, I made a movie called Finch with uh, Miguel Sapochnik, me and an actor by the name of Caleb Landry Jones. And a dog. That's all that we were in. It was just the three of us in this movie. And we were shooting a very tight scene in, a, in an RV. And the boom operator, the guy who uh, had the mic, because we were doing stuff with the dog or something like that. And I, and I kind of looked up. And I saw something new for the first time in this scenario of a camera and a focus puller and, you know, boom. Operator. There's always a bunch of people there. And I, I, I stopped seeing them long ago. And uh, the new thing in it was... <laughs> was a, uh, the boom, op the boom operator was wearing sunglasses. And I can't remember his name, but I said something like, Steve, what's with the sunglasses? And he said, oh, uh, this, this is because uh, I, I don't want to distract you with where my eyes are. And I said, dude, that is so caring. That is so thoughtful of you. That, that is magnificent. But all I can see now is a pair of sunglasses. <laughs> so so he, took, he took them off. But what he was doing was he realized that in tight quarters like that, for other people, you know, I'd be distracted by it. And I don't see that kind of stuff anymore. So I think I've, uh, you know, over the course of the last, uh, you know, I'm going to say 20 years of doing it, I'll say since, since maybe, I don't know when, it, some, some movie this all began to sort of like kick in. Maybe when I started working with Bob Zemeckis where it just became, hey, man, you just got to be there. I need you to be there. I need you to be my soulmate in this. And I need, I see what you're trying to do. I need you to just be there. And somewhere around there, I stopped seeing all that other, you know, debris that can get in the way of what you're trying to do. I don't see the lights. I don't get the sense. And to me, it's, it's more so now. And it's just me and whoever I'm in the scene with, just like that. I feel lucky in that. No, it's a great skill to develop. And I imagine the only way to get that is through years and years and years and years until they disappear. Well, I think there are some geniuses level. You know, I think there are people who do it quite naturally. I've never been one of them. You know, I remember when I was auditioning uh, for stuff, you know, and I was an unemployment, you know, never needed a job. I remember going into audition circumstances and thinking just for my own benefit, I'm better than 50% of these people here. You see all these guys who are my age and my height, my color or whatever it is, I'm better than 50% of them right now. They should just leave. If there's a hundred guys, 50 of you can go. Just take off right now. You leave. Then I would look at them and say, 
you know what? And there's, there's 45 of you guys that I'm just as good as. So if I'm the right, if I'm louder, if I'm funnier, if I'm quiet or whatever it is, I got the same exact shot at this than you guys do. So if I get, if I get the job, tough titties, guys, I was in the right place at the right time. But then there's always four guys there that you cannot touch. They are geniuses and they are on some other kind of like stellar plane. And I've worked with people that are like that. I just, I don't know how they do it, but they are operating on some other Formula One fuel here. And that if I watch them carefully, I can emulate them and go from emulation into imitation to actually, you know, a, a genuine reinterpretation of how to do this on my own. And uh, that's also part of the grand ass magic of doing all this. And sometimes I'm going to tell you right now, it comes out of people that, why does this role have somebody this brilliant in it? Oh, I see, because he's the best person or she's the best person for what this, what this role is. And it was meant to be. And I'm just going to watch this and carry, carry on with it. I'm, I'm going to try to do it like these people. But it's not just an imitation thing. It's that how do you get to a place where you're so comfortable in this moment? They're artists, man, and they don't need to explain it. And I don't think they probably couldn't explain it if they wanted to. How different is performing on stage versus acting in movies? The great thing about performing on stage is, is that you get to start at the beginning every single night and you get to ride it out to the very end. And I haven't, of recently, I was on Broadway in 2013 in a play called Lucky Guy, fabulous ensemble directed by George Wolfe. And I played uh, Falstaff in a great production of uh, Henry, uh, Henry IV, Part One and Two, with the Shakespeare Center of Los Angeles, directed by Dan Sullivan. And in both of those, there wasn't a single individual performance that was the same as the next one, because you go out at the beginning and something happens in the cookery of that audience and that night and that moment. And you can hear it, you can sense it. They're a little bit behind us. So let's lay it out a little bit more specifically. They're a little bit ahead of us so we can pick this up. Or they are so into this. All we have to do is be real and they are going to get it hands down. No, no performance lasts the same amount of time. Nothing rides exactly. Nothing lands exactly the same time. You can celebrate. Well, you, know, you, you look at Bruce Springsteen on, in, in one of his shows. You know that everybody's going to be in their feet you know, for a couple of those songs that he pulls out. And those exist in any Broadway, any, any theatrical show. You have, you have some moments of this scenario here. This is the well-made play. So let's ride this baby out. Let's celebrate it. But then you have to go into whatever the next beat is. And it's completely different. I think it's the purest uh, life that an actor can have. You're in charge. No one is cutting around you. It's your speed. It's your voice. And at any individual moment, it's your interpretation of what the language is. I think the thing that's more important when you're doing something on stage is that you have to be in tune with the rest of the ensemble. Everybody has to mesh. It has to be a beautiful orchestra. And everybody's got to come in with their line so perfectly. Because even if you're just playing French horns, there's a moment where the most important thing you're hearing is the French horns. I was on a, in, in the play that I did on Broadway. There was a scene between me and Peter Garrity. Peter Garrity's a great, great old actor. And he and I had done a number of things. He was in Charlie Wilson's War. And we were out on stage and we had a scene together at the end of the first act every single night for about 162 performances. 
And we were out, I'm going to say somewhere around performance 72. I heard him for the first time. You know, I heard what he said and how he said it for the first time. And the reason I heard it for the first time is because he just put some other kind of hitch in it for that performance. And it was a difference between hearing a line in a scene that leads to my cue and hearing an idea in a scene that was actually about two people talking to one another. And, so, and uh, after that, it was like, oh, Katie barred the door. It said, oh, I get, oh, I, I've experienced this thing now. Every night we get to find some new thing and put it out there. My friend, uh, Peter Scolari, we had done Bosom Buddies and we were in the show together. And every night, Every night he had one one percussive line that he said that was at the end of a you know a thing. Every night he put something else into it, and every night he absolutely killed me. God bless him. And every night when we were done, I I would come off and say, "You son of a bitch, you, you son of a bitch, you got me again." Uh, we lost Peter. He he passed away to cancer in last October. But uh, that's the great thing about every night. I mean, you know, you're I'm gonna I'm I don't like to make a lot of. Uh, analogies between actors and and musicians but every show is different man you know you hit some lick differently or you know the the crowd is not as into the surefire hit that you thought they were going to be and but instead they take to this other b-side that you're playing and everybody knows the lyrics to that thing happens all the time and it's the great joy of performing live it's the best i think it's the best life an actor can have but when you got to do it six or eight times a week, man, you got to be concentrated. You got to, you got to, you got to take care of the instrument. Considering the story you just told about the different audiences and the different reactions to essentially the same play, even though there may be slight differences, talk about the way different audiences experience the same movie. I think a play is something that you experience knowing that you're with a bunch of other strangers, that you are part of a group. It's palpable. There's a lobby that you go through. You find your seats. You step over other people. A motion picture, I think, at its core, is a singular experience for every different moviegoer. You get into the theater anytime you want. You sit down any place you want. You will have your accoutrements, your popcorn or none, your soda or none. You might read the paper before it starts. You might be with somebody. And so it's really a shared moment with you or a handful of other people. And even though you end up perhaps in a room that might be full of strangers, chances are if the theater holds 200 folks and you're there on a Thursday night, there might be 80 people there. You know, the first week it might be much more of an event. Okay. And that's different. But motion pictures are a one-on-one experience between the movie and the person who is watching. You name a movie that I saw in a a theater somewhere, I can tell you how old I was, what theater it was in, the circumstances around it, probably who I was with. But what, what really matters is, was what I got from that movie all by myself. So it's a singular interpretation of what you just saw. Now, that doesn't mean you go out and argue about it. Sure, you do that all the time. But everything, all the connections that are happening are happening so deep inside the recesses of your own head and the connections of your own head. Because you might be, you know, I've been gone off to movies and no, no one 
all I would think about was what would I do if I was in that circumstances? And the other person we're looking at from completely objective, you know, this is about somebody else. It's got nothing to do with me. And I think that's, that's the difference. Yeah, there is certainly the kind of metrics that say, you know, this national audience liked it, this, uh, this group saw it like here, uh, you know, a lot of Greeks were in the audience. And so they, they like you because you're married to a Greek. All sorts of things come around with it. But it, I think if you can continuously keep breaking that down, it ends up being a solitary experience for the movie. Girl. Because in a lot of ways, in some ways, I'm sorry, but the best way of seeing any movie is by yourself in a screen that is the best version of the movie you ever could possibly see. And I think we all end up, end up having that you know, sing-alongs and stuff like that. But when that contract that the audience has with the motion picture screen itself, when it kicks in somewhere around, you know, the opening credits, I think your field of vision starts being narrow and narrow and narrow. So it's just a cone between the screen and yourself, even though you're with your family and with your kids, whatever, if it's moving and it's involving, it's not that I don't think it's different at all from going to a museum and standing in front of a painting that you are the only person looking at that painting, even though everybody else has looked at it. So that, I guess the question is, what is the difference? Is that whatever the distance goes in between it being a group experience to being a singular experience is, is much faster in the cinema. It really does land in your consciousness almost in real time. So that when you're walking out of there, it's a singular opinion. Uh, or a singular experience of how it uh, how it touched you and what you're going to carry away with you after the movie. You know, on that on that topic, do you read reviews of movies before you've seen the movies? I never do. Sometimes, sometimes. Maybe I'll just try to get a gist of you know what, what's the what's the Vox Populi going to be talking about here? What does it really mean? But I, I really only read the entire review until after I've seen the movie myself, and I'm amazed at how often I didn't get that. I didn't see it like that. I, that's not what I got from this experience. It's not just, you know, is it good? Is it three stars or five stars? It's not that. It's always some other, you know, interpretation of what it meant. And I, you know, maybe it's my ego, but I always think I'm more right than whoever that is. <laughs> so yeah, this person didn't get it. I'm the right one here. Ask me about this movie. I'll tell you what it's all about. What motivates you to see a movie? Natural curiosity. I don't think I'm always seeking. I think the same thing anybody else is. I want time well spent. I want my investment in in a movie to be absolutely worth it. And there's nothing. There are few feelings better than coming out of a movie saying, "Thank God I saw that movie." Oh my God, my my life is so much. My day is better because of this, and I'll never forget where I was and what I was doing when I saw this movie. That's what you want. And on that side of it, you know, it's awfully easy to give up on a movie now in twenty minutes or so because oftentimes we're watching it at home. There's other things you can do, but when you pay in order to go to see it, you have a little bit more reason to stay. But I am always. I just want to see something I've never seen before. I don't want to, you know, I want to see something brand new, a new interpretation of something. You told a story earlier about holding the knife and the fork a certain way. And I wanted to ask, after a film, has the character that you've been playing for a period of time ever changed you? Does it work its way into your personal life or can you really leave it behind? No, I think as time has gone by, uh, the investment that I think I have to put into something can, in fact, 
it can change my it changed my perspective. There's been a number of jobs of recently that couldn't help but alter kind of a perspective. Part of it certainly is the the work experience of doing it in the first place, where you know you find yourself challenged in a way that you haven't been challenged. But there's also other parts of it that impact the way I sort of looked on the world that I would not have done it had I not had sort of like the work assignment of going off and getting some version of a bachelor's degree and what the subject matter is. Like, I don't think I fly on an airplane the same way that I did after playing, knowing Chesley Sullenberger and doing Sully. I just knew all this stuff about aviation now that I never knew. Meaning like, what are the pressures on these people who are doing this for a living? And what are the odds? And where has this plane been? And what sort of maintenance has it gone through? That's one aspect of it. Something else will come about like, you know, I can get, uh, because I played Fred Rogers in a movie about Fred Rogers. Is, oh, man, he must have been really been changed by that. And yeah, the stuff that I found out about Fred was absolutely fascinating. But what altered me more was the effect that Fred Rogers had on the writer who wrote the piece <laughs> that the entire movie is based on. That all came about because the writer who did this uh, cover story for Esquire wrote a story on Fred Rogers. And this guy had become persona non grata because of the style of expo, celebrity expose that he had written. There were people who just said, I'd love to do a cover for Esquire, but not with that guy. And he had approached his job as being some version of a literary historian and journalist. He says, you know, I'm going to do, if I'm going to do these stories on somebody, I'm going to really find out what makes them tick. And I'm going to place them in the proper place in the zeitgeist. And doing that made people want to have nothing to do with him. Okay, a bit of the contract that went on. But then he, almost as penance, Don Junod. Tom, who was around the set quite a bit, and I asked him about this specifically because I remembered the pieces that he wrote that turned him into a guy who was persona non grata. And he said, Fred Rogers changed his life for the better by doing this celebrity profile. Now, there's a lot of reasons to admire Fred Rogers, all, all sorts of things about him, how kind he was, the fact that he was a reverend, that he was ordained, that his ministry was three-year-old kids who were watching television, who had no idea how the world worked, who needed to learn how to communicate and deal with such things like the death of a puppy or something like that. A lot of reasons to look at Fred Rogers and just say, man, I'd like to be more like Fred Rogers. But what Tom experienced from him was a type of renaissance of kindness and understanding that began when he wrote the article about him, but then continued on for years afterwards. Fred remained invested in Tom's life. And Tom credited, I don't, uh, I don't want to necessarily put words into his mouth, but when he, tell, he, when he said, you know, Fred Rogers changed my life for the better because it gave him a bigger understanding of one's place in the zeitgeist, if that makes sense, you know? That you can actually, anybody can impart change in this world at certain levels. That, that's what he, Tom Junod learned from, from Fred Rogers. And it's like, what am I? I'm, I'm, my job is not to change the world. My job is to be a journalist and do my job. And my job is blah, blah, blah. And, Tom, and, and Fred Rogers said, well, of course, that's your job. But what's your place? What's the meaning of life? And it's not just be kind and be nice and blah, 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 and like that. And 
Uh, I will say that that was part of, I think, a, a bit of an answer that I was uh, that I might have been searching for because uh, I'm I'm not about to be uh, call myself a theologian in any way, but I remember. <laughs> Uh, I saw an interview, and in the research that I was doing, he was asked, you know, why should anybody pray? They asked this of Fred Rogers. And I will tell you that his his wife and his kids said, oh, no, Fred prayed every night. I said, what do you mean he prayed every night? I said, no, he said his prayers every night. I said, what were they? He said, well, he would just pray for people he knew. And I said, well, what does that mean exactly? And they couldn't answer my question necessarily. But I, I, you could always put it on, well, maybe it was just a meditative place, which was, you know, I'm thinking about so-and-so. And he, he prayed for Tom, you know. Now, he was asked specifically, how are we supposed to pray? What is a good prayer? And he says, there's only one, anybody can pray, and there's only one prayer, there's only one prayer to say, and it's just three words. And I, as soon as he said that, I started leaning forward, you know. What are these three words, Fred? And they said, the three words are, thank you, God. Thank you, comma, God. And you don't even have to believe in God to see the wisdom in that. Or the patience or the Zen quality of that, which means, thank you for getting me through the day. Thank you for the struggles you gave me. Thank you for seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. Thank you for stubbing my toe. Thank you for the time that, you know, there's just in a lot of that because I have gone through that and I've learned more about the human condition because of that. So thank you, comma, God. Now, I can say that I've learned all sorts of stuff about specific moments of history. I've learned about specific moments of the human condition. I've learned about, you know, I learned, I learned about Charlie Wilson and Jim Lovell and uh, plenty of other people, Ben Bradley by talking about them all. And out of it all comes some kind of like longer-ask education of almost like the humanities. Remember, you ever take those kind of classes like, well, we're going to study the humanities. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, it sort of means like how we became a little bit more enlightened than we were prior to that. I said, oh, well, I think that's, that's what my, my education I've been receiving as an actor through all of this stuff is a lesson in the humanities of making some sort of peace between why good things happen to bad people and why bad things happen to good people. Specific question based on the Gordon Willis example of oh, yeah. hitting your mark properly. Would you say since that day, you've hit your mark in the Gordon Willis way or no? Do things stick that become part of your craft? Uh, the thing that is stuck, I'm answering, yes, I'm giving you that yes. But the biggest thing that is stuck has been reading the room. I think certainly because the way I grew up, I had a self-defense mechanism of controlling the room. So I made a big entrance. I would always do that because I was always kind of like sweep in, do some kind of self-defense mechanism. I'm here and I'm open I'm on, and I'm loud and watch out. And who else is in here in the same position as I am? But now I think I'd like to think my wife might disagree with me is that I have a tendency now to come in and read the room because sometimes you do have to come in and read the room and understand, oh, this is a Gordon Willis room. I need to be very, very specific of where I am and how I'm there, what I say and how I say it. 
I have to have a different sort of presence and consistency in this room than might be called on in some other place. You know, some of it is business, of course. You know, I have a company and, you know, we talk about creative stuff all the time. And I'd love to hear myself talk and I love to hear how right I am all the time. But if I'm reading the room properly, I understand that, hey, there's other folks that are going to test this theory and by their testing and by their whatever confrontation, be it intellectual or even humorous, this is going to be made better. And I think I have learned that by having all sorts of demands put on me, certainly by material, but more specifically by the people that you actually interact with in the course of a movie that just say, I see what you're doing here, Tom, and it's not quite enough. It's good. It's not enough, though. You're actually cheating the process by being satisfied with what you've brought to this. So you need to read the room just a little bit better than you are, than you have been. And I think I've, that's, come a, that's come across because of, of the demands that I figured out that the, that the work requires of me. My place, certainly on the call sheet, you know, because if you're number one or number two on the call sheet, a lot of people are going to like snap too when you show up, whether they should or not. But along with that comes a responsibility to have earned that place where you are up on there. Because listen, when you're making a movie, someone is always the big dog. And if you're the big dog, you better protect everybody and make them feel safe. Uh, and you also better protect your own boundaries there. So I think I, I've learned over the course that my job is to be flexible. My job is to, believe it or not, there's something very specific very concrete. I do have to show up on time. I do. You have to. And you do have to be ready. You have to, you have to know the text. You do. And you do have to have an idea that is yours and yours alone. As, and if you don't do all three of those things, you're going to be missing out on all sorts of opportunities. In that case, why are you doing it at all? Tell me the story of Playtone. Playtone came about because when I did Philadelphia with Jonathan Demian and his company called Clinic Aesthetico, and we were talking about doing some other things, and he, I told him about this one idea I had for doing a rock, about a rock and roll band in 1964. And he said, you need to work with Gary Getzman, who is the producer. Gary was uh, the main executive producer. He, he, he wrangled all sorts of stuff for Jonathan Demi and all the movies and Silence of the Lambs and all of them. And he and I started, I got together with this guy and Gary is a bit of a genius in so many ways. And he goes back and, you know, a type of, he grew up in the Valley, you know, as a matter of fact, Gary Getzman is the basics for the character of Gary Valentine in Licorice Pizza by Paul Thomas Anderson. Wow. Yeah. He's a guy that was, was a bit of a entrepreneurial millionaire before he was out of high school. He, he knows production backwards and forward. So in the course of doing a movie called that thing you do, he and I just, start, I realized, oh, we finish each other's sentences. This guy is a genius at fixing anything. Gary and I were trying to go to a recording studio on Sunset Boulevard to record a jazz composition that we were just, we just titled it, I Am Spartacus. And we were going in to, to talk with these guys who literally banged it out that very day. Gary knows everybody in the music business, you know. And the parking lot was full. Right. The parking lot literally said had a sign on it that said parking lot full. And Gary said, no, just 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 go in the exit, just go in the exit. And before I knew it, 
Gary had gotten up, hey, man, take care of this for me. I thought, we'll be right back. We're only going to be here in about an hour and a half. And for some reason, the guy took $20 and watched our car in a full parking lot. Anybody else would have said, oh, he can't park there. Gary's not intimidated by such rules. So we've been doing that now since 1990, uh, 96. We've had Playtone. And all we do is sit around, come up with ideas that we think would make great, um, interesting, long-form stories. TV has changed. Uh, we did Band of Brothers. We, did, uh, we made the movie Castaway. We made the movie Polar Express. Uh, we made John Adams. Uh, we made The Pacific. We made Mamma Mia. We, uh, we, it's just a production house. We don't own it. We're just guns for hire. We just come up with the ideas and uh, sort of he does the hard work and I try to get involved and do quality assurance on it. And uh, I think one of the best things that we've done is we we did this nonfiction series for CNN that was about the each of the decades, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, in which we go back and try to break up all the tropes and find that footage that has been completely lost and forgotten. Because uh, history is a goofy thing with a lot of different kind of like interpretations of it. We just try to like put it up and said, here's what was said. Maybe this is what it means, but this is how it played out in real time on TV. And yeah, that's been very... That sounds great. I've seen many of those and I love them. Here's the, here's the problem with all of them. They, you think they're an hour long, but they're actually only 42 minutes of content because CNN plays so many commercials. Yeah, it seems like mm. it's an hour long, but we're always frustrated mm. because there's stuff that we want to get into. And if you've got only 42 minutes, like for example, like we were doing something about music in the, I want to say music in the 90s, I guess. And I ran into uh, Darius Rucker of Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah. And we had an entire, we never mentioned them. In, in, uh, it's, it's how, how can you do a story about music in the 90s <laughs> and not talk about Hootie and the Blowfish? And I said, Darius, you have to understand, there's a big difference between having 44 minutes of programming and having 42 minutes of programming. I'm sorry, man. You yeah. just... You just didn't make the cut. No offense. He laughed. How did you learn to act? I never had a problem getting up on stage. I did it like nothing at all. I had a natural kind of like, it was fun to get up. And I knew there were people that couldn't do it. And I had no problem doing it. Uh, learning how to act came in a number of phases. One was realizing that it was a, a class you could study. I didn't know that. We had a drama class in high school. And it wasn't just people wanting to be in the plays. We actually studied the plays and we did them. Junior college, I always took a theater class or an oral interpretation class because I needed the juju. I needed the creative release. And that led into, oh, this is actually a, this is actually a discipline I can declare as a major. I can study theater arts. And it was stage managing and stage lighting and set construction. I loved it all. Uh, along with it came, I, I thought acting was just something you did in order to blow time because it was fun. But then I saw people that were doing it pretty seriously. And I started taking it seriously enough in order to start auditioning for stuff to do in elsewhere. And then I came across uh, the best thing that happened, I think, education-wise, was I did a play in Sacramento for a gentleman by name Vincent Dowling, who was the artistic director of an organization called the Great Lake Shakespeare Festival in Cleveland, Ohio. And he did, they did a full season of six plays in rotating repertory. 
and they needed bodies. They needed bodies to fill out the roles on the stage, spare carriers, what have you, messengers. But they also needed bodies to do the physical work of changing over the sets every night. And so he collected this coterie, this company of about 15 of us, who, by the way, most of us are still friends. We still get together. And he, he put it to me this way. I'd like you to come and work in, in our theater because I think if you wanted to, you could be an actor. But that was a decision that you'll have to make. I cannot pay you. But what I can do is give you something of infinitely more value. And that is experience working with professional actors. And he was absolutely right. We ended up going and working with people who had been in the professional theater business for decades. There were guys that I'd seen on TV when I was a kid. Barney Cates, he'd been in an episode of Combat. He'd been in The Untouchables. There were people who had been doing it, who had studied at conservatories had, that had hundreds, hundreds of plays on their resumes. And they were good at it. And they, they were polished and they were professionals. And they were the ones who showed up on time, knew the lines, and had ideas in their head. And for, I did that for three years and came out of that, understanding what was required, I think, but also all that I didn't know. And I came out of there, I think, with a pretty competitive edge. And when I was convinced by them that there was only one place to be, if you were a professional actor, which I was by that time, because I got into the union, they paid me minimum. And that's when I got into the more competitive aspect. How, how do you get that job and that formula? I'm better than half the people. I'm as good as 45. And the remaining four are just, they're just geniuses. And maybe I can get into their, uh, get into their league or not, but I'm going to have to have a lot more of experience. And then just kind of like by way of being in the right place at the right time with the right goods, I'm not going to dismiss that. I mean, I think I was good at a number of things. I, could, I think I could do things that nobody else could. I think I was not intimidated by things that other people were intimidated by. I got onto TV, and from that, I got into a, a motion picture that with Ronnie Howard that no one else wanted to do because uh, it was going to be like kind of like a B movie, but it ended up doing well. I ended up being invited into the grander scheme of, oh, here's a young guy. We could put him in this movie, and I did a ton of movies because they asked me to, and I was an actor, and I learned something important from every single one of them, including what not to do. I think you go into stuff, you start assuming an awful lot. I know how to do this. No, you don't. Oh, I have this down. No, you don't. I know how to approach this. No, actually, you're lazy and you're, you're being way too satisfied with something that you think is great. You learn, you learn all that stuff. And I still, I'm still find myself being a guy like, okay, here's a, just the other night, we were talking and I uh, said, hey, let's try to see some classic old movie. All right, what should we see? And some titles came up and somebody said, To Catch a Thief, you know, 1954, Grace Kelly, Cary Grant. And I said, oh, you know, I've never seen that movie. And everybody was aghast. I'd never seen. It's one of those. Yeah, I know. I'd seen Rear Window. You know, I'd seen The Birds. I'd seen Psycho. Hadn't seen To Catch a Thief. So we watched it. And if I could tell you all that I learned from the Cary Grant Clinic for being a screen actor from that movie, it would take two hours of just talking to you, Rick, right now. Wow. That. Incredible. That. Okay. Take a look at where Cary Grant was when he made that movie. He had been a huge, huge film star for almost 20 years, right? 54. 
I think his first, uh, I mean, his, I've seen his screen test from a million years ago. I think it was done in like 1933 or something. And it was terrible. But this is a guy who had been not, he had been a screen icon for all that time. But by 54, he is a seasoned veteran. He knows camera. He knows how to keep his foot on one step of the stairs, just a little higher than his other, to communicate something in his body language that is a combination between the ability to flee really quickly or to feign disinterest, one of those two. So I never stop learning from something that I see, particularly when you see it for the first time, and particularly something that is supposed to be, you know, etched in stone or captured in amber. Cary Grant is supposed to be like an old school movie idol. You know, it's all a bunch of old tricks, but it's not that different than hearing like a really good Frank Sinatra record from 1948. Listen to the phrasing of what Sinatra is doing here. Listen to the orchestration behind what Nelson Riddle does just for Sinatra. Then you realize that, hey man, Bach is Bach for a reason, you know, Sinatra is Sinatra for a reason. Cary Grant was Cary Grant for a reason, man. So I still keep learning from him. It's funny you bring up Cary Grant because I was going to ask a question about the idea of the audience suspending their disbelief when they see you, because for 40 years, we've been seeing Tom Hanks. And the example I had in my head when I thought of the question was Cary Grant. When I see Cary Grant in a movie, I can't help but think it's Cary Grant. And it doesn't take away from my entertainment. Yet, that's Cary Grant. (laughs) He just did something brand new. The truth is, and I think a lot of, I've had to make my peace with this, and I think you have to acknowledge this, because it now comes off every single first paragraph of any review of a movie talks about every other movie everybody has made that's in our countenance, my countenance of all the movies that I've done, come along with whatever new movie that you're seeing. That's just the truth, and it's righteously so. It's like when you read the later stories of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you were impacted by the all the, all the other ones that you read. Doesn't mean Absolutely. you doesn't mean you don't it doesn't mean you ain't digging it. Out of out of the world of today, uh, are we going to say like I saw Adele in Vegas, and you know I think everybody knows every song that Adele has ever recorded, and yet that experience was brand new. And it was still a Absolutely. And she was doing stuff Absolutely. in there that was undeniably brand new and fresh. And I know all of Adele's stuff. So going into a motion picture, I mean, look, this is the case with anybody that's great. It's the case with Scarlett Johansson. It's the case with Robert De Niro. It's the, it's, uh, it, it, it's a case with Denzel Washington. You, it's the case with me. Everything we've ever done is wrapped up and is part of the brand new movie that we are seeing. But out of that comes whatever else is shaken through, you know, the sifter. There's other shit that comes out inside there. And you know what? It, if you're doing it right, if you're on top of the game, if you said yes for the right reasons, and if everybody has agreed upon the theme and the movie that you're making, and you're being tested by every single yes. person that is part yes. of the collaborative process there, new stuff is going to come out. And the only thing that happens then is more items are added to the countenance that you bring to it in the first place. Beautiful. And, oh man, that, that's the challenge that makes me go home at night and think, look at myself in the mirror and say, did I get there today? I mean, did we, wow. did we land on this at all? 
the bar is high. The bar is high and it's real more important. But here's here's the other thing that I you have to say. And this is this is a thing that Joe DiMaggio once said. You know, I've read a there's a really great book about Joe DiMaggio recently. Joe DiMaggio told himself all through his career, particularly when he was a great Joe DiMaggio in the uh, the Yankees, he always thought, I have to play my best and I have to be perfect because someone might be here seeing me play for the very first time. And that's the truth with any movie. You know, I can come across kids, you know, somebody who is 13 or 14, and they will say, when I saw you in Bridge of Spies, it made me want to become an, you know, it's a, these movies that are much later on because all the other stuff yeah. is, all the other stuff is, you know, accoutrements, accoutrements, you know, legacy kind of things. Mm-hmm. But it goes back to, I think that thing is every movie is a one-on-one experience and someone is seeing yeah. your new movie and they are seeing you for the very first time. Even if it's a vision of yourself that they're seeing for the very first time. Can't deny that. That's the power of what it yeah. is. Somewhere, somebody is putting on, you know, Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones, and they're hearing it for the first time. Or maybe they're cognizant of it for the very first time. Yeah. Can't deny that. And that's that's why art remains this timeless thing. Someone is putting on, you know, Prokofiev for the first time, and they're hearing that for the first time. Hey, man, I heard this really great record, man. What was it by? Some Russian guy named Prokofiev? I don't know what it is. Paula Betsy and Dance Number 3 or something. Yeah, I want to hear that again. Last question. Do you ever get nervous? Yeah, always. You got to have that zets. What I will have, I will say, I do have faith that I've gotten over that nervousness before, and I will do so again. (laughs) Some of it, of course, look, there's a thing that happens on movies where you are petrified for the first three days of making the movie. Petrified. Because you don't know what it's going to be. You don't know how it's going to go. I have no idea. I made this movie called Road to Perdition with Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Wow. And the first day of shooting was a huge party scene, right? In which I didn't have really anything that was expected of me. But Paul had to get up and give a toast in character. And it's the first day of shooting. A ton of people are in there making their first movie ever ton of people are in there making the first movie with Paul Newman. ton of people are in, the, you know, in a room with Paul Newman for the first time. And talk about a countenance that he carries with it, right? Paul gets up, and the time comes for him to shoot his toast, uh, to shoot the, his given a toast, you know. And he says, you know, maybe the devil not learn we're dead until half an hour. He said some sort of old, old Irish toast. And everybody was looking at him. And when he was done with his lines, he just looked at us all and said, uh, always feel self-conscious on the first day doesn't it and everybody just let everybody just let go and it was so same thing always feel self-conscious on the first day and there hasn't been a time that i haven't gone out on stage in which there isn't some either nanosecond or seven seconds of what is my first line what is my first line what is the first line i say what is my oh 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 oh. and then you go out and you say the first two words of it, and then the rest of it is clear. So you got to have faith, man. You got to have faith. You got to get there. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. A pleasure speaking to you. Ah, I love talking to you. Same. I got some questions for you. I'm going to start a podcast, and you'll be my third guest. I'm ready when you're ready. (laughs) All right. Great talking to you, Rick.